Hey everybody, it's Drags and it's Wednesday, August 8th. Time for episode 257 of Patriots Beat on the CLNS Media Network. Find us at clnsmedia.com. Follow us on Twitter at CLNS Media. And for all football coverage, including the Patriots, you can give us a follow, of course, at Patriots CLNS. Hard to believe we are on the eve of the first Patriots preseason game. Patriots and Redskins do battle at Gillette Stadium on Thursday night, and there is no shortage of storylines. Who will step forward as a slot receiver? What will Trent Brown look like at left tackle? Who besides Chris Hogan can get open deep? What will the Patriots defense look like run by Brian Flores in place of Matt Patricia? And which rookie defensive back will step up and challenge Eric Rowe for some playing time in the slot? want to welcome a new guest to discuss all of these topics and more to our rotation at Patriots Beat, breaking down all things Pats. Andrew Callahan, replacing the one and only Kevin Duffy at MassLive and MassLive.com. Andrew has done great work covering Penn State football for the last couple of years and is a proud alum of UConn. I'm building you up, Andrew. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jack. I appreciate it. You can find uh, Andrew on Twitter at underscore. You have to have that underscore there first, and then his name, Andrew Callahan. First of all, uh, Andrew, what's the biggest difference so far between Happy Valley and Foxborough? Sure. Uh, Well, I can tell you if you leave uh, Foxborough in any direction for 15 to 20 minutes, you'll find somewhere else. Uh, You you don't get to State College or Happy Valley by accident. And it's a bubble. Certainly, it's a big enough bubble. I really enjoyed my two years there and covered them part-time in 2015. But, you know, Foxborough, of course, you go north, you've got Boston. Um, you go elsewhere, you've got Hartford, you've got Providence, and, of course, plenty of other places. So it's, uh, it's great to be around uh, people wherever you go. We'll talk more Penn State later, of course. But I want to get to your story on Trent Brown. I really found it interesting, Andrew, um, what you've observed. Uh, you write, he might be the most impressive player uh, so far in camp, certainly if it weren't for Tom Brady and uh, Rob Gronkowski and Stefan Gilmore, uh, there's an argument to be made. He's the best player in New England in a New England uniform this summer. Why is that? I think when you look at him either in a team setting with the 11 on 11s and one on one, obviously, first of all, he sticks out because he's six foot eight, 380 pounds. Yeah, but there when is you that. observe him <laughs> <laughs> in any setting, he's winning. Like, and he is, and I say it in the piece, he's not only just you know, executing his job in pass protection and run blocking, but he's dominating the man across from him. So this is in all facets of the game. He's been extremely impressive in that regard, but also the fact that he's doing so in a new position at left tackle. So it's just, you know, he's very consistent, which is rare for this time of camp, um, and he's doing it in every way you could possibly ask. You also write lining up from across, uh, across from Brown. Patriot defenders have yet to figure out a reliable recipe for uh, beating the behemoth, uh, whether in one-on-ones or team drills, the task of uh, defeating Brown is as tall as he is. I think that's interesting because, um, Andrew, you know, in watching Brown a couple of times um, in training camp so far, your your first inclination is he can't get low enough and that he is susceptible to either speed, moves, quickness, uh, maybe an up and under. Uh, but that really hasn't been the case. No, it hasn't. He can move his feet extremely well. Bill Belichick, on one of the first days of training camp, uh, went on Sirius XM and described, listen, for a man of his size, he's athletic, but he's also light on his feet, which is such a key at that tackle position. And, you know, there's a little bit more balance these days between left and right. You see a lot of uh, pass rushers, the best in the league, lining up across right tackles. And there, Marcus Cannon, another guy, 335, 
6566, uh, who's big but light on his feet. And you see that absolutely with Brown. So you could see it early in the one-on-one, some of those Patriots defensive ends, and even the ones I talked to, Adrian Claiborne, Dietrich Wise, trying to take that speed, as you said, you'd assume you can get around them. And they had no luck. So then they went to the counter moves or the speed and then the spin back up inside, and Brown just swallowed them up. You know, and you also talked to Trey Flowers. I am a big fan of the way Trey Flowers plays football, uh, Andrew. I got to tell you, I think he's going to have a breakout year. And um, you spoke to him, and and you know, he told you he's uh, that being Trent Brown is just a guy who you really can't go around him. Definitely can't go through him. Just have to uh, find a way to get him to move his feet or whatever. Yeah, and honestly, I think the next line in there, too, is whatever being probably the better option if you're a defensive end because, again, Brown can move his feet. So for Flowers, it's interesting to me. You know, he gets his name of a technique early on in his career because he's just so sound in everything he does. He's, of course, very strong uh, and versatile. But, you know, the best part of what he does is there's no wasted movement. Well, even for a guy who is so sound in his technique, he's having trouble with Brown, which leads you to believe that, you know, there's almost nothing else to be done because when Brown on his own – is six foot eight, three hundred and eight pounds, and sound in his technique, and he can move. I mean, there, there's just no way, as he said, around him or going through him. So I think there, you always have to try different options. Um, you know, Dietrich Wise had some success, some one on ones. You know, last week uh, we haven't seen much of that since. But you know, it's just no matter what you throw at him, at least among Patriots defensive linemen, Brown has been up to the test. So, uh, sixty-four million dollar question: Why did the uh, 49ers, with their brand new shiny quarterback and Jimmy Garoppolo? Why would they give up on the guy? <laughs> That's an excellent question uh, because I think within the last year, Kyle Shanahan called him the best pass-protecting tackle perhaps he's ever seen. And Shanahan, while a younger coach, has, of course, been around the game his entire life as the son of Mike Shanahan. So for me, you know, I can't speak to the roster. I know Joe Staley's done an outstanding job for them at left tackle. I'm sure they had a body besides Brown. Uh, right tackle, they feel, could fill in capably for him. That deal, I believe, was Brown in a fifth for the Patriots third. And it's unusual to see the Patriots deal out um, so many high draft picks, but you know, with the pick and return that they could fall back and acquire Brown is a no brainer for them. Some people suggested this was kind of a, you know, belated, uh, we'll scratch your back, sending you Garoppolo just for a second. when We had offers for multiple firsts and you scratch ours a little bit later on. I don't know how much truth there is to that or there isn't. Um, but for me, I think it was just a deal with the Niners felt comfortable with that price point, And the Patriots, of course, are going to jump on a deal like that. Also should point out he's in his final year, right, of his rookie deal. So he is an unrestricted unrestricted free agent next year. So 49ers figure, yeah, he he could be a terrific left tackle for one year. Uh, But, you know, we see it across all platforms and all sports that um, having player control is of utmost importance. And uh, Patriots will get Trent Brown for one year and, you know, obviously the, the hope is for the Patriots that he's inspired to show what he can do in a Patriots uniform uh, for one year. They get the best out of him, and then maybe they sign him, maybe they don't, right? Yeah, and they've got another interesting decision on that offensive line with Shaq Mason, another one-year deal. Trey Flowers also in a contract year. So many difficult decisions for them. The interesting part about this to me will be the conversations with Drew Rosenhaus, Brown's agent, who was at practice the other day, and, and how he's paid moving forward. Because, you know, they could obviously flip him back to right tackle to felt comfortable enough. Isaiah Wynn has taken reps at left tackle, the rookie first-round pick. So do you pay him for what he's done thus far, which has primarily been a right tackle, or do you pay him for the one year that he's been in New England, which will be as a left tackle? And then how do you factor in what they say they'll do with him in the future? So those negotiations will will obviously be very interesting. I think of the two right now, and it's so, so early, 
um, that they'd be more likely to keep Brown because I think he's just a rarer commodity than a guy like Shaq Mason, who's a guard better on the run game than he is in pass protection. But, you know, we're a ways away from that. And for Brown, he's done as, as well as he can to get that, you know, leverage early on whenever they get to the negotiating table. Biggest takeaways so far watching Isaiah win. What are they? Strong start. And he's not really hit a rookie wall, but he's certainly slowed down. I mentioned watching Brown in team settings and one-on-ones. Wins one-on-ones have really gone downhill as of lately. Adrian Claiborne handled him twice in the last practice that we saw on Saturday with power moves and just getting around him with a little bit of an overset on Wins part. And the first two days, he was the best offensive lineman out there outside of Trent Brown. So I think he'll, he'll develop, he'll move on. We saw him at a couple snaps at guard. Uh, during some 11-on-11s. 11 again, I think they're going to keep him at tackle, um, but he's impressive, and now it's just a matter of how do you fight through this this early adversity in camp. I know this is a lot of offensive line talk, but I think it's fascinating because <laughs> when you talk Tom Brady, you have to talk about who's protecting him up front, right? I mean, to me, I don't think enough people talk about offensive line play in front of um, Tom, I mean, they have over the years. They obviously, there's been a ton of focus, and deservedly so, on offensive line uh, coach guru uh, Dante Scarnecchia. Uh, but when you break down the players, there's a lot of significance up front in front of Tom Brady. Absolutely, and, and you know, take Brady even out of the equation when you're talking about the offensive line in any franchise, in any college program, in any high school. That's essentially half of the offense. Five of the eleven players on your offensive unit are up front so they're going to have a large say in how the success of any given play goes and for me this is my first column actually when i got to math live is you know you, you read so much trying to prepare for this job and get ready for camp and i just felt this overwhelming feeling of worry about the patriots offensive line uh, coming into the season nate solder being the biggest reason behind that and i wrote you know from an outside perspective I think that worry is overstated because, again, you get this guy in Trent Brown, and, and, you know, I look good given how he's performed in camp, but I didn't know it at the time, but he's known for his pass protection. Well, what was this line's biggest issue last year, and especially in weeks about one through eight, one through nine? It was pass protection because they finished as the number one team in the NFL in run blocking in terms of football outsiders' uh, metrics that they have out there, which do an outstanding job not only accounting for yards gained, but in the situations and the teams against which they do it. So, for me, if they shored up their pass protection, which is a strength of wins, it's certainly strength of Browns I felt the rest of the interior line it's a young group it's an ascending group they're going to get better and they'll be fine and I think what we've seen so far has been a very impressive camp from this front five well you'll learn uh Andrew uh, very quickly that they uh love to get find something to be worried about here in New England when it comes to the Patriots <laughs> they gotta have I mean, something, right? I mean it, yeah. you know you can almost say that about all of the teams across the board because there's so much success uh, and and I think when you have a team or an organization like the Patriots that has been historically successful almost in an unprecedented fashion, I think it's safe to say, uh, for 18, going on 18 years now, there's always got to be, where's that crack in the armor going to come? Right. And you know what? I think they probably, like most places, take after the head coach, right? I mean, after wins, I've you know read and seen many a Bill Belichick press conference, and you would almost think the result had been a loss. Is we got to do this better. We got to coach better. We got to play better and prepare. And, you know, after losses, it's, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, more sunshine and maybe not rainbows ever from Belichick. But you understand that, listen, they've got to be hard on themselves so they don't ever plateau. Uh, I think that kind of spills over to the fan base where you go, yeah, listen, you just got back to your second straight Super Bowl after winning one against Falcons, your fifth as a franchise since 2000. You know, there's going to be some nitpicking, but that's what's made them better, and fans kind of adopt that same attitude. So what is what have been your biggest impressions of Bill Belichick dealing with him so far? 
<laughs> uh, let's say he's lived up to the hype. I mean, I grew up in New England, was a huge NFL fan. I, I used to write these monstrous NFL previews in high school, trying to cover every team, get to know everyone. But of course, you know, you flip on the TV on Sundays, you're going to see the Patriots most often. So I had a good grasp of him and uh, a lot of reading, and I think he's lived up to it. I mean, he, you know, he's he's very good and smart with the media. I think he doesn't say any extra words that he doesn't need to. You, of course, would like more out of him and be more insightful, and it, it kind of depends upon the day, but. You know, I think, again, just doing more reading or speaking to people in and around the organization, you get an absolute feel for, for how they've been successful and why. So, uh, yeah, so far as, uh, as expected with Bill. You know, it, it's interesting you say that, Andrew, because, you know, I was uh, over at Fenway Park on Thursday and Friday nights, and Alex Cora's demeanor is much different. And he's obviously having a tremendously successful rookie campaign with the Red Sox, uh, again, historic, if you will. Uh, but his demeanor uh, and his ability to show his emotion, much different than Belichick. That is the thing that really amazes me over the course of you know now 18 years. And I covered him back in Cleveland back in the early 90s as well. He just doesn't show emotion. I mean, very, very rarely does he show emotion, whether he's thrilled um, or whether he's really upset. I'm talking about in post-game press conference settings. Obviously, he shows emotion on the field sure. when somebody makes a great play. But I'm talking about when he's in front of us. When he's in front of the media or when he's in front of the camera, uh, it is robotic and it is precise and calculated. Yeah, 100%. I think it stems just as all of us would. You know, you speak up, whether it's in front of a microphone or in conversation with someone, the more time goes on, the more you know words that you say in your appearance and your demeanor just stems from what your personality is. And this is a guy whose nickname was Doom, you know, courtesy of Bill Parcells when he's working with the Giants in the 80s. So that's the way he handles himself, and it's a little bit better, and you speak to players or hear from different things that, you know, he's certainly got a dry sense of humor, but in front of the media, I mean, his objective is to, you know, answer the questions that, in the way that best serves the Patriots and the organization, and his standpoint is, you know, not provide any extra motivation to other teams and not, you know, kind of bump up his players too much so that there's an overconfidence out there and just kind of continue this we're going to stay day-to-day um, present mindset. So for him, you know, it's I think it's a little bit of his personality, of course, and the same thing for Cora or other you know, guys even on the other end of the spectrum, like a Rex Ryan, that is who they are. Uh, and it's, you know, toned down a little bit, you know, given they want to be aware of what they're going to say is going to have far-reaching um, kind of a ripple effect with the media. Speaking with Andrew Callahan, beat reporter for MassLive.com, covering the New England Patriots. I want to tell you guys about a new wellness brand for men. It's called Hims. Forhims.com. 66% of men lose their hair by the age of 35. Thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It's always easier, guys, to keep the hair you have than replace the hair you've lost. You know that already. Is that hairline slowly starting to move backwards? Any bald spots popping up yet? How will you feel a year from now if it's business as usual? Up top, why do guys turn to weird solutions or even do nothing when they can turn to medicine and science? Well, there is a solution, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. It's called 4hims.com. Thanks to science, baldness, guys, can now be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. Order now. My listeners get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today, right now. While supplies last, see the website for full details. This would cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or even a pharmacy. Go to forhims.com slash trags. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash T-R-A-G-S. Forhims.com slash 
Drag. Speaking again with Andrew Callahan, terrific beat reporter and columnist for MassLive.com, covering your New England Patriots. All right, here's a concern of mine, Sony Michelle. I think uh, you know a lot of people considered uh, Andrew Sony to be a big part of the passing game, a big part, you know, a big uh, piece backing up Rex Burkhead and obviously James White as a third down back, maybe, you know, even a a three down back, uh, you know, much in the same fold as Deion Lewis was and Rex Burkhead currently is. But the uh, knee getting drained and the bone-on-bone injury that uh, was reported back around the NFL draft time, your concern about Sonny Michel? You know, I think it's um, about as high a concern you can have with a player who's, you know, expected to miss a few weeks here, but I think it just confirms the worries had in the draft process, as you said about that bone-on-bone, which I had first heard when Mike Lombardi of the Ringer goes on and says, listen, there's concerns about that being really the structure and situation with his knee, which, of course, is not going to get any better. I mean, you don't regrow that cartilage there. So, uh, for me, I think... You know, he'll see the field again, of course, but you wonder if he's going to be able to be effective past his first contract. For the Patriots in the immediate future, I think their concern is you look at the remaining running backs in that room, Burkhead, as you mentioned, I throw Mike Gillisley in there, guys who are probably more versatile than the other ones in the room, but they're also more injury-prone. I mean, Burkhead missed time a year ago. Gillisley fell off the face of the earth, you know, after week nine, and part of that was due to effectiveness. But if Michelle's not able to step in and be, uh, you know, an every-down back, then you really don't have another reliable three-down back in that room. So it'll be by committee, but you'd love to have that explosiveness because as good as Dion was, you know, they did not have many gains ripped off of more than 25 or 30 yards a year ago. Michelle has that home run ability, but of course it's only if he's on the field. What about uh, Jeremy Hill? What have been your observations? This is a guy who uh, a couple of years ago with the Bengals was, I thought, one of their most valuable players, one of the best young up-and-coming uh, running backs uh, in the AFC, and he really fell off a cliff. Uh, obviously, I think a lot of people will point to his fumble against the Steelers. Certainly, I watched that with great interest. Uh, when he fumbled against the Steelers, his career really has never been the same. I look at Hill as more of a one-dimensional guy, again, kind of a power back. I think he, he's decent in some zone running schemes, and the Patriots are a lot of heavy outside zone. Um, you know, in any area of the field, so I think plays is part of his strength. But for me, he's got to bring some sort of value on special teams. So oddly enough, the thing that catches my eye is that he's one of those three guys back on kick returns. He's not going to have the ball in his hands, but he's one of those front two protectors and that they've had running out there with the first team kickoff. So if he's able to establish himself on the kickoff unit, I think that could give him an edge over Mike Gillisley. Right now, even though Gillisley's missed time, I would project to be on the 53-man roster ahead of Hill. Um, because, again, it goes back to the fumbling issues. He's a little bit one-dimensional. So I'm not as high on Hill as most, you know, because I think you could fill in and hand the ball off to Burkhead or maybe even Gillisley in those short yardage areas where you'd look at Hill. But he's been with the second-team offense in their opening walkthroughs of practice. He'll work in there occasionally. But I just think when you look at the other backs, they have a greater versatility, which, of course, plays to the Patriots' mindset offensively. And unless, again, he makes that impact on kickoff, I, I'm not sure he makes the roster. Well, I'm a little surprised by that, but uh, I, I guess not really. I mean, I initially thought when they signed him that Mike Gillisley's spot was in trouble, but maybe not. I, maybe you're right that Gillisley picked up on the system. Yeah, and it's, it's good to see from him, too, because, of course, you, you never want um, you know, the player's downfall to be their own injuries, which happens every single day in the NFL. But for him, you know, if he's out there again, he was one of the more undervalued backs in the entire league when the Patriots picked him up. And that was the reason he was starting out the season so strong. So for them, they see a value there. 
you know, a, a guy who can do a little bit of everything as long as he's out there on the field. So you can't say that uphill, but, you know, the, the best ability, Belichick has said, you know, is dependability and availability. And that's where it starts with both of them. And so far, Hill's out a little bit ahead because he's been at every single practice. Okay, big question marks in the wide receiving core, obviously, beyond uh, Chris Hogan and Julian Edelman. How do you see Eric Decker fit, fitting in, um, if he fits in at all? You know, I'm not sure he fits in at all. This isn't so much a commentary on the rest of the wide receivers or Decker himself, but a little bit of a combination of the two because I think the name certainly gets your attention. The fact that he's only 31 uh, is also kind of you know seen as a positive. But from my standpoint, if Decker was such a quality option for the Patriots or any team in the league by now, he would have been signed, and he wasn't. So his body's broken down a little bit. He had four very productive years split between Denver and New York when he picked up that second contract with the Jets, one-year deal last year with the Titans. But he had trouble separating, and I think we're all left with this last impression You know, when he had a breakout game against the Patriots in the divisional round. But that was not representative of the season that he had. So you know, it's nice for the Patriots that he can play a little bit in the slot and, of course, be on the out side but he's got some catching up to do from the playbook which thankfully for him his experience with Josh McDaniels who's originally drafted in Denver does help though he's been in multiple systems since uh, I just see guys like Kenny Britt are certainly ahead of him Philip Dorsett obviously in that mix and some of the youngsters Riley McCarron has stepped up as has Braxton Berrios and I think as of as of now, which again we have four preseason games to go, I think Decker will be on the outside looking in. Um, but you know, for them, more competition is always going to be a good thing, especially in an area where you need some more help. Tell me why the Patriots would not even uh, take a flyer on Des Bryant. You know, it's a good question. I, I think when you look at Bryant, he has some of the same issues that Decker does. Of course, you're you're on the wrong side of thirty inability to separate from man coverage, your body's breaking down a little bit. And then, you know, you look at the, the playbook experience, I think that helps Decker's familiarity with Josh McDaniels. And there was a report out the other day that had McDaniels and the Broncos not nabbed him at number 87 overall in that 2010 draft, the Patriots would have nabbed him at number 90. And of course, they instead go with Taylor Price, who had one of the more forgettable receivers of the or receiving careers of the Belichick era. So, you know, I think they like him. There's a familiarity there. And you've got some off-field stuff where the locker room, you know, issues in Dallas have since spilled out onto Twitter between him and Sean Lee. And Sean Lee's always been known as this guy and a captain, well-respected and, and really revered in Dallas. So, you know, if you don't have to deal with that, the Patriots, of course, never want to. Um, and I think that's ultimately why they went with Decker. i got to tell you, watching Braxton Berrios return punts, and I get it, um, you know, it's not game competition. He's got to have the fastest first step of any of their receivers right now. Yeah, I certainly think so, and especially because Edelman's not at 100%. No, and that's the one thing I noticed. And, and, you know, Edelman confirmed this, obviously, what was it, on Friday or Saturday? Friday, when he said that, um, you know, he's just not back where he he wanted to be. I mean, it was interesting because Edelman at the start of camp, and you remember this, Andrew, said, oh, I feel great, everything's great, you know, whatever it is, uh, 10, 11 months after surgery on his ACL, and then he gets through like a week of camp, and the, the tone, his tenor kind of changed. Like, he maybe he sees himself running at full speed versus uh, other guys out on the field, and he's not where he wants to be. Is, is that how you read that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think he, he cushioned that original statement saying, listen, I feel great now, but I don't know how tomorrow will be, which is partly just a reality of training camp because, again, these guys are all getting in fresh off of a full summer. Then the grind hits after about a week or so. And for him, it, it, it's perhaps even doubly so because – 
you know, the ACL that he's coming back from. So I think it, it, it hurts him personally from a pride standpoint that he's not the receiver he once was. And this is a progression, but also compared to some of the other wideouts in camp, Barrios is, you know, of course, smaller, but in the same mold of an Edelman of a guy who plays that slot position, can return punts. And Rylan McCarron, again, who's trying to fill those same roles. And we all know how Edelman made this team. It's coming in as they did as long shots, Barrios sixth round pick, Edelman wants a seventh round pick. And he knows that, you know, maybe his, his roster spot's not in jeopardy, but he's got to find that old version of himself in the next few weeks, in the next few months, um, or else he might have the ending in New England that, that he wants. And of course, everyone in that organization would want for him. All right, uh, that's it for Patriots for now. I want to move on and ask you about the culture covering Penn State football for the last two years. Um, actually, you said part-time also in 2015, is that right? Yeah, mostly home games. I was working for a Daily Paper in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Have they fully recovered from Jerry Sandusky? I believe so. And why is that? You know, I think for them, and this happened more in 2016, and it speaks to the idea of winning cures everything, that they're, they start the season two and two, have a rash of injuries, and they go on and don't lose a single game uh, until they get to the Rose Bowl against USC. That, you know, the conversation ultimately started to turn from what Penn State was linebacker you all these teams under Joe Paterno to what it now is and in 2016 what it was was a big 10 championship team last season in 2017 they lose two games by a combined four points to Michigan State and Ohio State both on the road they go 10 and 2 again and win the Fiesta Bowl so people are talking about what the school is and now what it could be and I think that's ultimately how you can tell if the place has moved on is if the focus is on the present and the future as opposed to the past could you could you sense a notable change from the time you got there Till the time you left that, uh, you know, that you know, Penn State football was becoming relevant again and it was, or has it always been fiercely uh, ingrained in that culture and in, in um, State College? Yeah, you know, I think there's there's certainly a change. I mean, you always have the turnover, just as you see uh, on the rosters of the football team, but just within the university itself. A whole new student body every four or five years or so. So these kids come into the school not identifying as much with what used to be the Paterno era. You know, of course, there was the two years Bill O'Brien was there. Now James Franklin has established himself. There's a new way of going about their business, replacing all the facilities, their new mantras and things like that. So the longer those are established, that's what the kids coming in, you know, work to know. Now, of course... You know, I would drive around those roads and you see bumper stickers that say 409, which is, of course, the total number of wins Joe Paterno had as the head coach at Penn State, the most in NCAA history. So people kind of cling to him. There are bars I'd go to that would have 409, um, you know, on the walls and such. But I think overall, people are excited about James Franklin and, and the staff and the program as it is now. So football is always going to be ingrained there, just as you would find in a number of different places in the SEC. But it's a healthier point. And, you know, they're always going to be the, the fringes there. But I think it, it's fading away a little bit. And they, they kind of cling and hold on to the pride of the past. But, you know, all, all the hurt, which, of course, mostly and most importantly was with the actual victims of those crimes, um, is starting to fade away. I got to tell you, uh, Billy O'Brien, I don't think, gets enough credit for going in there. And I don't think maybe he does. I mean, you were there. But what he was able to do just to stabilize the program and, you know, set it up for, you know, until he could get moved back to the NFL, which he did and more power to him. And to have James Franklin come in uh, to a situation uh, that was starting to really heal and starting to head in the right direction. I think Bill O'Brien gets deserves a lot of credit. 
Oh, I 100% agree. And I was there, you know, when I was at, at school at UConn, I used to go visit friends during that time period, his first year, uh, 2012, and kind of get a feel for the whole area because he's not only dealing with a roster that suffered from a lot of transfers because, of course, at that time, kids were allowed, you know, without you know any penalty essentially to transfer away. And then 2013, he had two winning seasons when you're losing some of your best players there. And you know, other coaches from other programs are coming to pilfer them straight out of the program. But he's also handling the faction of people that were, you know, you could just put it as pro paterno and wanted to stick by him no matter what facts or whatever research or reports came out and then those who were hoping to move on so that's a really tricky balancing act when you've got to maintain quality relationships with boosters who might be in very different camps then of course keeping the players on campus and then recruiting the new ones who look at the situation and go why the hell would i want to go there so for him he was able to land christian hackenberg which was a big win for him hackenberg was excellent under o'brien not so much under franklin um and again just the fact that they could say during that entire turmoil which again the biggest problem and issues were, of course, the victims and the crimes that happened in the past. But specific to the program, they were able to maintain winning throughout that entirety of that process and the sanctions, which are now over. And now that they've had their scholarships restored to 85, they're winning New Year's Six Bowls and going to Big Ten Championship games. All right, Andrew, how can people follow you both on Twitter and online at MassLive.com? Sure. Yeah. As you said, I'm at underscore Andrew Callahan. My Facebook page, I think is AJC sports, uh, you know, so facebook.com slash AJC sports. All my stories are up there. Always happy to engage on Facebook, on Twitter, masslives.com uh, slash Patriots or slash sports. Either one works. We, we have a ton of stuff coming out every day. I definitely feel like I've gotten a rhythm now uh, here on the beat and taking some new things, not only from what I did at Penn State, but we'll do here in New England. And, you know, to be honest, it's a bigger difference from a media standpoint, which no one ever wants to hear about what we go through. But our access was super limited, as you'll find everywhere in college football. And now that I'm here with the Patriots, I just feel like there are at least three or four excellent stories all of us could do every single day. So you'll find those up at Mass Live and then big time X note breakdowns, which are really my trademark at Penn State. Uh, we'll go into, you know, the schemes, play selection, personnel, why the Patriots did this, what they were looking to attack an opponent. That'll start Thursday with the Redskins and then, of course, more into the regular season. So everything at MassLive.com backslash Patriots. You realize the irony of what you just said, right? The access? I think you're about to enlighten me. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, well, yeah. Well, yeah the yeah. access. See, here's the thing in New England is so many people have bitched and moaned about lack of access and lack of uh, ability to really get inside the Patriot walls. Well, that's ridiculous because anybody who's covered college football knows college football coaches are that much more protective of their student athletes and of the program and how they run things than even the NFL. I don't think people appreciate that. I really don't. Right. And again, no one, no one wants to hear us bitch and moan about our jobs or who we get to speak to, who we right, don't. It's our job to point. find the answers and find those people. But, but you're a hundred percent right. I mean, because in a college program, you know, the access and, you know, engagement that you have with players is not standardized in the league as you find with the NFL, where they go, listen, if you're a part of the NFL, your teams have to make their players available at times X, Y, and Z on, you know, days Wednesday through Friday in the locker room. I never stepped foot in the Penn State locker room. Players were, you know, you had to ask basically permission outside of post-game um, interviews, you know, to speak with them or their parents or anyone connected with them. Freshmen couldn't speak. I mean, could you imagine at this stage not being able to speak with a Sony Michelle or an Isaiah Wynn, which isn't to say they're going to be entirely available, but, you know, that's how it was in college because the head football coaches get to say whatever they want within their own respective programs because it's not standardized by the NCAA. But there's enough here in New England. They might be, you know, tight-lipped and not say a whole lot, but at least you get to bottom every single day to, to see if you can get a little bit more out of them. 
All right, Andrew, thank you. And thanks again to everybody for downloading today's Patriots Beat. want to once again thank our terrific guest from MassLive.com, Andrew Callahan. You can follow him once again on Twitter at underscore Andrew Callahan. You can also follow us at Patriots CLNS and at CLNS Media. Also give my own personal account a follow at Trags, T-R-A-G-S. Today's sponsor the great folks at 4hims.com. Patriots content manager Michael Angie, CLNS media executive producer Larry H. Russell, the founder of the network Nick Gelso. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. This is Mike Petralia, and this has been the Patriots Beat Podcast, powered by CLNS Media.